Chapter One of Impressions of Theophrastus Such. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Daily-Inspiration.org. Impressions of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. Chapter One. Looking Inward. It is my habit to give an account to myself of the characters I meet with. Can I give any true account of my own? I am a bachelor, without domestic distractions of any sort, and have all my life been an attentive companion to myself, flattering my nature agreeably on plausible occasions, reviling it rather bitterly when it mortified me, and in general remembering its doings and sufferings with a tenacity which is too apt to raise surprise, if not disgust, at the careless inaccuracy of my acquaintances, who impute to me opinions I never held, express their desire to convert me to my favorite ideas, forget whether I have ever been to the East, and are capable of being three several times astonished at my never having told them before of my accident in the Alps, causing me the nervous shock which has ever since notably diminished my digestive powers. Surely I ought to know myself better than these indifferent outsiders can know me, nay, better even than my intimate friends, to whom I have never breathed those items of my inward experience which have chiefly shaped my life. Yet I have often been forced into the reflection that even the acquaintances who are as forgetful of my biography and tenets as they would be if I were a dead philosopher, are probably aware of certain points in me which may not be included in my most active suspicion. We sing an exquisite passage out of tune, and innocently repeat it for the greater pleasure of our hearers. Who can be aware of what his foreign accent is in the ears of a native? And how can a man be conscious of that dull perception which causes him to mistake altogether what will make him agreeable to a particular woman, and to persevere eagerly in a behavior which she is privately recording against him. I have had some confidences from my female friends as to their opinion of other men whom I have observed trying to make themselves amiable, and it has occurred to me that though I can hardly be so blundering as Lippus, in the rest of those mistaken candidates for favor whom I have seen ruining their chance by a too elaborate personal canvas, I must still come under the common fatality of mankind, and share the liability to be absurd without knowing that I am absurd. It is in the nature of foolish reasoning to seem good to the foolish reasoner. Hence, with all possible study of myself, with all possible effort to escape from the pitiable illusion which makes men laugh, shriek, or curl the lip at folly's likeness, in total unconsciousness that it resembles themselves, I am obliged to recognize that while there are secrets in me unguessed by others, these others have certain items of knowledge about the extent of my powers and the figure I make with them, which in turn are secrets unguessed by me. When I was a lad, I danced a hornpipe with arduous scrupulosity, and while suffering pangs of pallid shyness, 
was yet proud of my superiority as a dancing pupil, imagining for myself a high place in the estimation of beholders. But I can now picture the amusement they had in the incongruity of my solemn face and ridiculous legs. What sort of hornpipe am I dancing now? Thus, if I laugh at you, O oh fellow men, if I trace with curious interest your labyrinthine self-delusions, note the inconsistencies in your zealous adhesions, and smile at your helpless endeavors in a rashly chosen part. It is not that I feel myself aloof from you. The more intimately I seem to discern your weaknesses, the stronger to me is the proof that I share them. How otherwise could I get the discernment? For even what we are averse to, what we vow not to entertain, must have shaped or shadowed itself within us as a possibility before we can think of exorcising it. No man can know his brother simply as a spectator. Dear blunderers, I am one of you. I wince at the fact, but I am not ignorant of it that I, too, am laughable on unsuspected occasions. Nay, in the very tempest and whirlwind of my anger, I include myself under my own indignation. If the human race has a bad reputation, I perceive that I cannot escape being compromised, and thus, while I carry in myself the key to other men's experience, it is only by observing others that I can so far correct my self-ignorance as to arrive at the certainty that I am liable to commit myself unawares and to manifest some incompetency which I know no more of than the blind man knows of his image in the glass. Is it then possible to describe oneself at once faithfully and fully? In all autobiography there is, nay, ought to be, an incompleteness which may have the effect of falsity. We are, each of us, bound to reticence by the piety we owe to those who have been nearest to us and have had a mingled influence over our lives, by the fellow-feeling which should restrain us from turning our volunteered and picked confessions into an act of accusation against others, who have no chance of vindicating themselves, and most of all by that reverence for the higher efforts of our common nature which commands us to bury its lowest fatalities, its invincible remnants of the brute, its most agonizing struggles with temptation in unbroken silence. But the incompleteness which comes of self-ignorance may be compensated by self-betrayal. A man who is affected to tears in dwelling on the generosity of his own sentiments makes me aware of several things not included under those terms, who has sinned more against those three duteous reticences than Jean-Jacques? Yet half our impressions of his character come not from what he means to convey, but from what he unconsciously enables us to discern. This naive veracity of self-presentation is attainable by the slenderest talent on the most trivial occasions, the least lucid and impressive of orators, may be perfectly successful in showing us the weak points of his grammar. Hence, I too may be so far like Jean-Jacques as to communicate more than I am aware of. 
I am not indeed writing an autobiography or pretending to give an unreserved description of myself, but only offering some slight confessions in an apologetic light to indicate that if in my absence you dealt as freely with my unconscious weaknesses as I have dealt with the unconscious weaknesses of others, I should not feel myself warranted by common sense in regarding your freedom of observation as an exceptional case of evil speaking, or as malignant interpretation of a character which really offers no handle to just objection, or even as an unfair use for your amusement of disadvantages which, since they are mine, should be regarded with more than ordinary tenderness. Let me at least try to feel myself in the ranks with my fellow men. It is true that I would rather not hear either your well-founded ridicule or your judicious strictures, though not averse to finding fault with myself and conscious of deserving lashes, I like to keep the scourge in my own discriminating hand. I never felt myself sufficiently meritorious to like being hated as a proof of my superiority or so thirsty for improvement as to desire that all my acquaintances should give me their candid opinion of me. I really do not want to learn from my enemies. I prefer having none to learn from. Instead of being glad when men use me despitefully, I wish they would behave better and find a more amiable occupation for their intervals of business. In brief, after a close intimacy with myself for longer period than I choose to mention, I find within me a permanent longing for approbation, sympathy, and love. Yet I am a bachelor, and the person I love best has never loved me, or known that I loved her. Though continually in society and caring about the joys and sorrows of my neighbors, I feel myself, so far as my personal lot is concerned, uncared for and alone. "'Your own fault, my dear fellow,' said Minutius Felix one day, that I had incautiously mentioned this uninteresting fact. And he was right, in sense as other than he had intended. Why should I expect to be admired and have my company doted upon? I have done no services to my country beyond those of every peaceable, orderly citizen.' And as to intellectual contribution, my only published work was a failure, so that I am spoken of to inquiring beholders as the author of a book you have probably not seen. The work was a humorous romance, unique in its kind, and, I am told, is much tasted in a Cherokee translation, where the jokes are rendered with all the serious eloquence characteristic of the red races. This sort of distinction as a writer nobody is likely to have read can hardly counteract an indistinctness in my articulation which the best-intentioned loudness will not remedy. Then, in some quarters my awkward feet are against me, the length of my upper lip, an inveterate way I have of walking with my head foremost, my chin projecting, one can become only too well aware of such things by looking in the glass or in that other mirror held up to nature in the frank opinions of street boys or of our free people traveling by excursion train. And no doubt 
they account for the half-suppressed smiles which i have observed on some fair faces when i have been presented before them this direct perceptive judgment is not to be argued against but i am tempted to remonstrate when the physical points i have mentioned are apparently taken to warrant unfavourable inferences concerning my mental quickness with all the increasing uncertainty which modern progress has thrown over the relations of mind and body it seems tolerably clear that wit cannot be seated in the upper lip and that the balance of the haunches in walking has nothing to do with the subtle discrimination of ideas yet strangers evidently do not expect me to make a clever observation and my good things are as unnoticed as if they were anonymous pictures i have indeed had the mixed satisfaction of finding that when they were appropriated by someone else they were found remarkable and even brilliant it is to be borne in mind that i am not rich have neither stud nor cellar and no very high connection such as give to a look of imbecility a certain prestige of inheritance through a titled line just as the austrian lip confers a grandeur of historical associations on a kind of feature which might make us reject an advertising footman i have now and then done harm to a good cause by speaking for it in public and have discovered too late that my attitude on the occasion would more suitably have been that of negative beneficence is it really to the advantage of an opinion that i should be known to hold it and as to the force of my arguments that is a secondary consideration with audiences who have given a new scope to the ex pede herculum principle and from awkward feet infer awkward fallacies once when zeal lifted me on my legs i distinctly heard an enlightened artisan remark here's a rum cut and doubtless he reasoned in the same way as the elegant glycera when she politely puts on an air of listening to me but elevates her eyebrows and chills her glance in sign of predetermined neutrality both have their reasons for judging the quality of my speech beforehand this sort of reception to a man of affectionate disposition who has also the innocent vanity of desiring to be agreeable has naturally a depressing if not embittering tendency and in early life i began to seek for some consoling point of view some warrantable method of softening the hard peas i had to walk on some comfortable fanaticism which might supply the needed self-satisfaction at one time i dwelt much on the idea of compensation trying to believe that i was all the wiser for my bruised vanity that i had the higher place in the true spiritual scale and even that a day might come when some visible triumph would place me in the french heaven of having the laughers on my side but i presently perceived that this was a very odious sort of self-cajolery was it in the least true that i was wiser than several of my friends who made an excellent figure and were perhaps praised a little beyond their merit is the ugly unready man in the corner outside the current of conversation 
really likely to have a fairer view of things than the agreeable talker whose success strikes the unsuccessful as a repulsive example of forwardness and conceit. And as to compensation in future years, would the fact that I myself got it reconcile me to an order of things in which I could see a multitude with as bad a share as mine who, instead of getting their corresponding compensation, were getting beyond the reach of it in old age? What could be more contemptible than the mood of mind which makes a man measure the justice of divine or human law by the agreeableness of his own shadow and the ample satisfaction of his own desires? I dropped a form of consolation which seemed to be encouraging me in the persuasion that my discontent was the chief evil in the world, and my benefit the soul of good in that evil. May there not be at least a partial release from the imprisoning verdict that a man's philosophy is the formula of his personality. In certain branches of science we can ascertain our personal equation, the measure of difference between our judgments and an average standard. May there not be some corresponding correction of our personal partialities in moral theorizing? If a squint or other ocular defect disturbs my vision, I can get instructed in the fact, be made aware that my condition is abnormal, and either through spectacles or diligent imagination I can learn the average appearance of things. Is there no remedy or corrective for that inward squint which consists in a dissatisfied egoism or other want of mental balance? In my conscience, I saw that the bias of personal discontent was just as misleading and odious as the bias of self-satisfaction. Whether we look through the rose-colored glass or the indigo, we are equally far from the hues which the healthy human eye beholds in heaven above and earth below. I began to dread ways of consoling which were really a flattering of native illusions, a feeding up into monstrosity of an inward growth already disproportionate, to get an especial scorn for that scorn of mankind which is a transmuted disappointment of preposterous claims to watch with peculiar alarm, lest what I called my philosophic estimate of the human lot in general should be a mere prose lyric expressing my own pain and subsequent bad temper. The standing ground worth striving after seems to be some delectable mountain whence I could see things in proportions as little as possible determined by that self-partiality which certainly plays a necessary part in our bodily sustenance but has a starving effect on the mind. Thus, I finally gave up any attempt to make out that I preferred cutting a bad figure, and that I liked to be despised because in this way I was getting more virtuous than my successful rivals. And I have long looked with suspicion on all views which are recommended as peculiarly consolatory to wounded vanity or other personal disappointments. The consolations of egoism are simply a change of attitude or a resort to a new kind of diet which soothes and fattens it. Fed in this way, 
it is apt to become a monstrous spiritual pride or a chuckling satisfaction that the final balance will not be against us but against those who now eclipse us examining the world in order to find consolation is very much like looking carefully over the pages of a great book in order to find our own name if not in the text at least in a laudatory note whether we find what we want or not our preoccupation has hindered us from a true knowledge of the contents but an attention fixed on the main theme or various matter of the book would deliver us from that slavish subjection to our own self-importance and i had the mighty volume of the world before me nay i had the struggling action of a myriad lives around me each single life as dear to itself as mine to me was there no escape here from the stupidity of a murmuring self-occupation clearly enough if anything hindered my thought from rising to the force of passionately interested contemplation or my poor pent-up pond of sensitiveness from widening into a beneficent river of sympathy it was my own dullness and though i could not make myself the reverse of shallow all at once i had at least learned where i had better turn my attention something came of this alteration in my point of view though i admit that the result is of no striking kind it is unnecessary for me to utter modest denials since none have assured me that i have a vast intellectual scope or what is more surprising considering i have done so little that i might if i chose surpass any distinguished man whom they wish to deprecate i have not attained any lofty peak of magnanimity nor would i trust beforehand in my capability of meeting a severe demand for moral heroism but that i have at least succeeded in establishing a habit of mind which keeps watch against my self-partiality and promotes a fair consideration of what touches the feelings or the fortunes of my neighbours seems to be proved by the ready confidence with which men and women appeal to my interest in their experience it is gratifying to one who would above all things avoid the insanity of fancying himself a more momentous or touching object than he really is to find that nobody expects from him the least sign of such mental aberration and that he is evidently held capable of listening to all kinds of personal outpourings without the least disposition to become communicative in the same way this confirmation of the hope that my bearing is not that of the self-flattering lunatic is given me in ample measure my acquaintances tell me unreservedly of their triumphs and their peaks explain their purposes at length and reassure me with cheerfulness as to their chances of success insist on their theories and accept me as a dummy with whom they rehearse their side of future discussions unwind their coiled-up griefs in relation to their husbands or recite to me examples of feminine incomprehensibility as typified in their wives mention frequently the fair applause which their merits have wrung from some person and the attacks to which certain oblique motives have stimulated others at the time when i was less free from superstition about my own power of charming 
I occasionally, in the glow of sympathy which embraced me and my confiding friend on the subject of his dissatisfaction or resentment, was urged to hint at a corresponding experience in my own case. But the signs of a rapidly lowering pulse and spreading nervous depression in my previously vivacious interlocutor warned me that I was acting on that dangerous misreading, do as you are done by. Recalling the true version of the golden rule, I could not wish that others should lower my spirits as I was lowering my friends. After several times obtaining the same result from a like experiment in which all the circumstances were varied except my own personality, I took it as an established inference that these fitful signs of a lingering belief in my own importance were generally felt to be abnormal and were something short of that sanity which I aimed to secure. Clearness on this point is not without its gratifications, as I have said. While my desire to explain myself in private ears has been quelled, the habit of getting interested in the experience of others has been continually gathering strength, and I am really at the point of finding that this world would be worth living in without any lot of one's own. Is it not possible for me to enjoy the scenery of the earth without saying to myself, I have a cabbage garden in it? But this sounds like the lunacy of fancying oneself everybody else and being unable to play one's own part decently, another form of the disloyal attempt to be independent of the common lot and to live without a sharing of pain. Perhaps I have made self-betrayals enough already to show that I have not arrived at that non-human independence. My conversational reticences about myself termed to garrulousness on paper, as the sea lion plunges and swims the more energetically because his limbs are of a sort to make him shambling on land. The act of writing, in spite of past experience, brings with it the vague, delightful illusion of an audience nearer to my own idiom than the Cherokees, and more numerous than the visionary one for whom many authors have declared themselves willing to go through the pleasing punishment of publication. My illusion is of a more liberal kind, and I imagine a far-off, hazy, multitudinous assemblage, as in a picture of paradise, making an approving chorus to the sentences and paragraphs of which I myself particularly enjoyed the writing. The haze is a necessary condition. If any physiognomy becomes distinct in the foreground, it is fatal. The countenance is sure to be one bent on discountenancing my innocent intentions. It is pale-eyed, incapable of being amused when I am amused, or indignant at what makes me indignant. It stares at my presumption, pities my ignorance, or is manifestly preparing to expose the various instances in which I unconsciously disgrace myself. I shudder at this too corporeal auditor and turn toward another point of the compass where the haze is unbroken. Why should I not indulge this remaining illusion, since I do not take my approving choral paradise as a warrant for setting the press to work again and making some thousand sheets of superior paper unsaleable? I leave my manuscripts to a judgment outside my imagination, but I will not ask to hear it or request my friends to pronounce before I have 
been buried decently what he really thinks of my parts and to state candidly whether my papers would be most usefully applied in lighting the cheerful domestic fire it is all too probable that he will be exasperated at the trouble i have given him of reading them but the consequent clearness and vivacity with which he could demonstrate to me that the fault of my manuscripts as of my one published work is simply flatness and not that surpassing subtlety which is the preferable ground of popular neglect this verdict however instructively expressed is a portion of earthly discipline of which i will not beseech my friend to be the instrument other persons i am aware have not the same cowardly shrinking from a candid opinion of their performances and are even importunately eager for it but i have convinced myself in numerous cases that such exposers of their own back to the smiter were of too hopeful a disposition to believe in the scourge and really trusted in a pleasant anointing an outpouring of balm without any previous wounds i am of a less trusting disposition and will only ask my friend to use his judgment in insuring me against posthumous mistake thus i make myself a charter to write and keep the pleasing inspiring illusion of being listened to though i may sometimes write about myself what i have already said on this too familiar theme has been meant only as a preface to show that in noting the weaknesses of my acquaintances i am conscious of my fellowship with them that a gratified sense of superiority is at the root of barbarous laughter may be at least half the truth but there is a loving laughter in which the only recognized superiority is that of the ideal self the god within holding the mirror and the scourge for our own pettiness as well as our neighbors end of chapter one